Please be seated. This month, a United Nations court has been considering a closely watched case brought by South Africa. It alleges that Israel is committing genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. More than 26,000 people have been killed there. On Friday, the International Court of Justice ordered Israel to do more to prevent civilian deaths. The court said that the plausibility of genocide under international law made that need more urgent. In the court's view, at least some of the acts and omissions alleged by South Africa to have been committed by Israel in Gaza appear to be capable of falling within the provisions of the convention. In light of the fall, I think it's important to say off the top that this was not a verdict on the question of whether or not Israel has committed genocide. Emily Rahala is the Brussels bureau chief for The Post. She was at The Hague when the court announced the ruling. On Friday, what we heard from the court was a decision on something called provisional measures. These are emergency steps that the court can take to prevent a conflict between countries from getting worse as a case plays out, usually over the course of years. South Africa had asked for Israel to end its military operation in Gaza and for a bunch of other steps, more humanitarian aid, for instance. And on Friday, the court decided to order Israel to take actions to prevent genocide by limiting the killing and harm of civilians in Gaza. They did not, however, decide to order Israel to stop its military operation. These provisional orders are legally binding, but Emily says that they are really hard to enforce. So what that means is that, you know, according to the law, Israel has to do these things and they're going to be asked to report back in a month. The trouble is, it's really hard for a court like this to actually make a country do something. So we're going to have to watch and see if and how Israel changes the course of the war. And how significant is this ruling? I think it's quite significant. The South African side was claiming that this was a huge victory for the court and for international law and for people in Gaza who are suffering. Israel, of course, stressed the other side of the decision, which was that the court decided not to order an end to their military operations in Gaza. So they saw that as, in their eyes, something as a victory as well. Wherever you fall between those two positions, somewhere along that line, I think most people would agree that it was quite a big moment. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, January 29th. Today, Emily breaks down how the case has played out so far in court and whether it could change the course of the war in Gaza. So let's go back and get a little bit of context here. Tell me more about the International Court of Justice. What is it and what kind of authority does this court have? The International Court of Justice, sometimes called the World Court or the UN Court, was created in the aftermath of World War II to solve disputes between countries. And that's the role that it's playing in this case. South Africa, a country, has brought a case against Israel, another country. And in this case, the case relates to the Conventions on Genocide. 
And how often has this kind of issue come before the ICJ in the past, where uh, one nation is essentially accusing another nation of committing genocide? It doesn't happen all the time because the bar for genocide cases is really quite high. What I mean by that is that it can actually, in legal terms, be quite challenging to prove a genocide case. But there have been previous cases in the 90s, and more recently, there was a case brought by Gambia against Myanmar, a genocide case. So it does happen, but when it happens, it's sort of a big deal because the allegation of genocide is so serious and the legal bar is so high. What is required to prove in this court that genocide is occurring? So in a legal setting, in the context of this court, proving genocide means proving an intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a group based on national, ethnical, racial, or religious identity. That's the legal definition. And so the question was, is it plausible enough that there could be genocide, that the court should act in the interim and institute what are called provisional measures to stop things from getting worse as this case plays out over years. Well, and then also in that definition that you highlighted, there's the phrase proven intent. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how intent plays a role in the arguments that we saw in court? So what South Africa tried to do in its presentation and its filing is to not just show that people were killed or that people of the same religious or, quote, ethnical group were killed, but they were targeted as such. They were targeted because they were Palestinians in Gaza. And that's the legal bar that a genocide case needs to meet. An intent deliberately targeting a group because they are that group and destroying them in whole or in part. It's also interesting that this is South Africa bringing a case against Israel. How did South Africa become the country that is arguing this in court? You're right. South Africa is not a direct party to this conflict, so it is a little bit unusual in some ways to see them bringing this case. But that's the way this was designed. Because the crime of genocide is so serious and the stakes are so high in terms of preventing genocide, any country can bring a case in order to try to prevent genocide or to make allegations that another country has committed genocide. But I'm curious, like, is South Africa's own history playing a role in how it's approaching this or why it feels so compelled to be the country to come forward and accuse another nation of committing genocide? Definitely. Uh, when the South African legal team opened their remarks earlier this month, they invoked the country's history of apartheid. And they definitely believe because of their own history that they have some standing and that it means more that they are the ones bringing this case. Of course, the Israeli side has questioned why it's South Africa, but definitely South Africa's post-apartheid government has been a longtime supporter of the Palestinian cause, and they see it as quite resonant and quite meaningful that they are the ones in court bringing this case. Sitting is open. The court meets today and will meet tomorrow under Article 74, Paragraph 3 of the Rules of Court. I want to get a better sense of how this all actually played out in court over the last few weeks. So can you describe a little bit about the arguments made by the legal team from South Africa? 
So South Africa got to essentially have the first word. There were two back-to-back hearings to start this off. The first day was three hours of remarks from South Africa, and the next day Israel delivered their remarks. South Africa opened, as I mentioned, by invoking their own history related to this. And they, over a course of three rather dramatic hours, made their case. Some of the remarks were quite technical and legal about the court's jurisdiction in the case, the specific manner in which the case was brought. But really, the most searing testimony and the heart of their case was several lengthy presentations on the situation on the ground in Gaza. Israel has killed an unparalleled and unprecedented number of civilians with the full knowledge of how many civilian lives each bomb will take. This is Adila Hassim. She was one of the lawyers representing South Africa in the hearing. This killing is nothing short of destruction of Palestinian life. It is inflicted deliberately. No one is spared, not even newborn babies. The scale of Palestinian child killings in Gaza is such that UN chiefs have described it as a graveyard for children. The devastation we submit is intended is intended to and has laid waste to Gaza beyond any acceptable legal, let alone humane, justification. It's interesting to hear her kind of pause on that phrase is intended to, like coming back again to this idea of intent. Can you say more about that? Yeah, this was something that the lawyers for the South African side tried to draw out. A key part of what they're trying to do here as they made their case was to try to establish that the scale was part of a plan, that it was deliberate, and they're also trying to make the case that it was disproportionate. They know that the Israeli side says this is a war being waged in self-defense. So what you hear in that clip is her trying to make the case that this goes beyond self-defense, that it is intended to go beyond self-defense, and that it is intended to be disproportionate. And that's why the South African side really stressed the size of the numbers and the scope of the deaths. Another thing the South African side tried to do was use the words of top Israeli officials to try to build their case that there's genocidal intent. There is an extraordinary feature in this case. This is Tembeka Nikukai Tobi, another lawyer for the South African delegation. That Israel's political leaders, military commanders, and persons holding official positions have systematically and in explicit terms declared their genocidal intent. And these statements are then repeated by soldiers on the ground in Gaza as they engage in the destruction of Palestinians and the physical infrastructure of Gaza. So they quoted Israeli officials speaking publicly, for instance, calling Palestinians, quote, human animals. What they're trying to do here is make the case that top officials are essentially inciting genocide, that they are sending a message to soldiers on the ground that this type of behavior is encouraged by the state.
after the break, Emily explains Israel's response. We'll be right back. How did the Israeli side respond to these accusations, and what were the arguments that they were making in court? So the next day, the Israeli legal team had their moment. They had three hours to respond to everything that the South African side had said the day before. The key component of genocide, the intention to destroy a people in whole or in part, is totally lacking. This is Tal Becker, one of the lawyers who spoke on behalf of Israel. What Israel seeks by operating in Gaza is not to destroy a people, but to protect the people, its people, who are under attack on multiple fronts, and to do so in accordance with the law, even as it faces a heartless enemy determined to use that very commitment against it. The heart of their argument is that their military operation in Gaza is self-defense and that they have the right to act in self-defense. South Africa had said, look at these numbers. These are essentially disproportionate and they don't speak to self-defense. And that shows intent. And what the Israeli side tried to do was say, if we really had an intent to commit genocide, would we, for example, they said, call Palestinians to warn of imminent attacks? Would we offer humanitarian aid? Once the Israeli lawyers started to make their own arguments, how did they address those statements made by Israeli officials that South African lawyers brought up as examples of dehumanizing language or language with genocidal intent? So in their testimony, the Israeli team accused the South African side of, quote, cherry-picking remarks. What they said was, yes, some officials said these things, but you have not established that them saying these things was A, in context, and B, led to specific behavior on the ground. From the Israeli perspective, these remarks were made sort of in the heat of the moment and were not orders to soldiers on the ground. I've also heard the argument raised that, you know, going back to the October 7th attacks by Hamas, like, where is the International Court of Justice case against Hamas? You know, why aren't they standing in front of a court defending their actions? Was that brought up in court? I mean, what's the answer there? So that is something that the Israeli side raised. And in their remarks before the court, they came back again and again to Hamas, the way that Hamas has attacked them, their ongoing campaign. I think the key thing to understand here is that Hamas can't be brought to the ICJ because the ICJ is a UN court that mediates between nations and Hamas is a militant group. So there is no way for Hamas to be there. I just think there's also something very striking about the fact that these accusations are being brought against a country like Israel. Um, that You know, a country that, to me feels like it is the country in the world whose kind of national identity is most synonymous with, like, being the victim of, you know, history's worst genocide. And so, I, you know, I, like, 
I wonder if there was some addressing of like what it means to accuse a country of genocide when that country, you know, its existence was in some ways born out of history's most infamous genocide. You're right, Martine. I think that's exactly what sort of gives this case such explosive power outside, within, but but outside the courtroom as well. Uh, the Israeli side did reference its own history and its creation after the Holocaust. And I think to the Israeli legal team and to some Israelis, the fact that it is Israel being accused of genocide in court feels you know, particularly painful and resonant. What the South Africa side is saying is that being the victim of genocide does not mean that you cannot perpetrate it. And what they're trying to establish in court is that it's possible or legally plausible that they did. What has President Biden or has Biden's administration said publicly about this case against Israel? So Israel has basically said this case is a libel and it should be rejected. And the remarks from the Biden administration have been along similar lines. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken called the case, quote, meritless. And a few other U.S. allies, including Britain, have also dismissed the case. So what happens at this point? What impact will this ruling have on Israel's military campaign in Gaza? And to what extent can we expect to see some adjustment in how they're executing this military campaign based on what the ICJ has ordered? This is a big question going forward. I don't think anyone has the answer yet. When the decision came out on Friday, we immediately saw comments from the Israeli side, you know, essentially criticizing the outcome, saying we're going to continue to fight Hamas. Essentially, nothing will change. I talked to a bunch of international law experts, and they had a somewhat different view. They agreed that Israel certainly won't be ending its military operation, likely won't be completely changing it. But they tended to believe that Israel is taking this seriously and that it might make changes either potentially to how it is conducting this operation but certainly into how it is speaking about it. We might see Israeli officials be a little bit more careful with language. We might indeed see an uptick in humanitarian aid. It's just not clear yet exactly where that line is going to fall. But we know that one month from now, the Israeli side is going to have to report back to the court on what they've been doing. So we're going to have a pretty clear readout on how they see this within a few weeks. Emily, thank you so much for explaining this. Thank you, Martine. Emily Rahala is the Brussels bureau chief for The Post. On Friday, Israel alleged that UN workers tasked with providing humanitarian aid in Gaza were involved in Hamas's October 7th attacks. The U.N. launched an investigation into the accusation and fired several staff members. 
In response, a growing number of countries, including the U.S., paused funding to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees. Over the weekend, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned that the agency could run out of money to meet all the needs of displaced Palestinians as soon as February. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Peter Bresnan. It was mixed by Sam Baer and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thanks also to Marissa Bellock, Aaron Cunningham, and Matt Brown. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. Not only is it a great way to help us continue to do this work, but you can now get access to Washington Post podcasts, ad-free in Apple Podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.